When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome in once again to the QB11 show. I am Doug Scott, joined as always by QB11. Andrew, good evening. Good evening, Doug. How are you doing? I am great. And we are joined once again by Hithliday from Addicted to Quack, uh, here to break down the Pac-12 and the Oregon Ducks, particularly through the first six games of the season as we're at the halfway point. We're on a bye week. Hithliday, welcome in and thank you for joining us. Uh, My pleasure. Good to be here. Oh, I just say, I don't know about you two, but I'm getting this weird, like, deja vu sensation about this <laughs> podcast. Yeah, it's it's almost like we had this conversation before. Uh, don't worry, guys. I, I won't. I promise I won't sound rehearsed at all. <laughs> That's no, good, because I you'd make me look bad if you did. Perfect. Well, let, let's get rolling into it then, Doug. Yeah, obviously. Awesome. Let's do it. So we'll start with the offense. Uh, you know, so kind of let's break down the Oregon offense, which is by most uh, advanced statistical metrics, a top 10 offense in the country through six games, despite the the three points and the and the subpar performance in the first one in, in Atlanta there. So Hithilde, you know, kind of break down what you're seeing in your film review and in your game charting uh, in regards to this offense. Uh, well, since you mentioned the, the opener Atlanta, let me um, let me make clear the so I've charted all six games, of course, um, and I've you know run the numbers out of all of them. But I also because it's fairly easy to exclude any given game from the data set just to check how that affects things. Basically, the answer is on offense, it doesn't affect anything. I can suppress any individual game, and it doesn't matter, uh, including you know excluding the FCS game against Eastern Washington doesn't change the numbers, or excluding the Georgia game because they got killed, and it doesn't really boost the numbers. The Oregon actually off. Offensively, on an efficiency basis, anyway, uh, you know, performed fairly well against Georgia. You know, they're not they're not living off of uh, killing an FCS team, and they're not really dying uh, based on their offensive performance against Georgia. Um, you know, the numbers just really read out the same no matter what. Um, there's two. Uh, I you know I break it down to two phases: the, the the rushing offense and the passing offense. The 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 rushing offense is performing super well. Is not a huge surprise to me because it goes back to 2021 and really goes back to 2019. Um, 2020 is a weird <laughs> season for a lot of different reasons, but basically uh, the, the offensive line that's been in place at Oregon, um, which is the through line, you know, connecting staffs, uh, you know, running backs, offensive styles, you know, everything. The, the, the offensive line is this, you know, sort of uninterrupted continuous line, and it's providing an excellent baseline for Oregon's performance. Uh, they are rushing at about a 70% efficiency rate, uh, meaning you know, given the down and distance, you know, when they run the ball, they about seven times out of 10, they get the yardage that they need to stay ahead of the sticks. And uh, that's a bonkers number. In my experience, you know, 50% is average, 60% is championship caliber. So 70% and, and, and not just in a single game, but this is sustained now over two years, arguably four years um, that they're rushing at just crazy efficiency numbers. Um, and it provides a baseline for everything that you do. It's a versatile tool to be able to run the ball. It sets up your passing game. Um, it lets you control the opponent, lets you control the clock. Uh, it's, you know, it is the fundamental to everything that Oregon does. Um, the passing offense uh, it, it has been a surprise to me in that it's been nearly as good. It's uh, grading out at about 63, 64%, um, which is, you know, a change from last year when it was, you know, down at like 53 or sometimes below water like it was back in uh, 2019. Um uh, I put it down to simply Bo Nix is a pretty accurate quarterback and he has a good core of folks to throw the ball to. Um, you know, this isn't like watching uh, Anthony Brown, you know, uh, you know, put the ball 
in the wrong spot, you know, on a lot of throws. This isn't like watching, you know, Justin Herbert when in the college version anyway, when he was sort of like not seeing open receivers, like Nix is making the correct decisions and he's placing the ball where it needs to be. And he's got receivers who, you know, run well after the catch um, and, you know, play calling, which, you know, is appropriate, you know, that it sort of responds to the number of safeties in the box. They're not trying to force the run, uh, you know, when opponents are loading the box, they're taking advantage deep shots when opponents bring safeties down to try to stop the run uh it's been a real pleasure to watch no, i 100 percent agree with everything hitfleday is saying um and then just contextually i think that the the change in system has had some benefits i think that coach dillingham and this isn't really something that you can contextualize with stats as much but the, the ability to run the ball as kind of the basis baseline and then the progression of the offense, even almost week to week as we've moved through the first six games of the season, going from the game against Eastern Washington, where almost, I mean, I think 51% of passes were caught behind the line of scrimmage. Like it was, it was about like really working on the execution of the lateral passing game, the screen game. Um, how do we stretch the field laterally to enhance our, our run game, whether that's, um, whether that's an interior or exterior run, it didn't really matter. It was about stretching laterally and then moving into BYU, um, the vertical passing threat came in more. And then moving into Washington State, the vertical pe- passing threat really came in more. And in the attempts downfield, like way exceeded um, the screens and, and intended passes behind the line of scrimmage by a substantial margin. So I, I think that, that Coach D- Kenny Dillingham at this point in the season has a green play sheet where, depend regardless of personnel package, um, or down a distance, he, he can feel comfortable in doing anything he needs to do. The offensive line, as Hithliday mentioned, is, is playing at an outstandingly efficient rate. Um, there's, ex- there's explosive plays to be had basically in every phase of the offense currently. And so it, it's a situation where in partial because of the poor defenses that Oregon has played beyond Georgia this year, um, but also just because of a super high level of execution by Bo Nix, um, in the offensive line, they can't really do any wrong to this point through six games. The other thing that I have to say that I, I, I like about this offense and has been a pleasant surprise given how young Kenny Dillingham is, is that like, there's, there's no stubbornness that I detect, you know, when they make mistakes, they correct them, you know, like I, I think there were, you know, real, you know, not entirely, but, you know, a good chunk of the um, red zone issues in the first half against Wazoo did, in my opinion, relate to um, play calling, you know, that you sort of like calling plays that, um, that assumed that Wazoo had no advantages at all on, on defense, which they obviously do. They have certain speed advantages to hit the edge. Um, and, uh, but then, you know, he quit being stubborn about it, you know, like he, he, you know, took out those plays that were ineffective in the second half and, you know, sure enough, you know, we're gangbusters. Um, I like that it's, uh, or like, you know, the penalty issue, you know, it must have been a hell of a halftime speech at Stanford because, you know, they sort of cleaned that up in the second half. Um, I like how they've been adding plays, you know, every week, like, for example, the I formation that they debuted uh, at BYU. Um you know, at first it's just inside power, outside power. At this point, they're running seven different plays out of the I formation and they've added a new one. You know, every time they, they've had a, you know, quarterback sneak, they've had a fullback dive. Uh, they've, they, uh, they had that leak out to, uh, to, to Cam McCormick, you know, in the Wazoo game for the touchdown, uh, they, against Stanford, they had Nick's, you know, bootleg out to the right, um, all, which was going to be a pass, but then he saw it was open. So he just scrambled for it. Um, and, uh, and then against, uh, Arizona, they added the, the Matavau, you know, little jet sweep motion, you know, into the, the end zone. So like, you know, who knows what they're going to add, you know, in week seven, it's, there's probably, they're probably going to run the I formation again. They're probably going to add an eighth play. And it's like, good luck, you know, good luck uh, opposing defensive coordinators looking at that film or like the other one that, that sort of tickles me is the, um, uh, although may not tickle many Oregon fans, given their bizarre allergic reaction to it, is that Oregon ran 14 plays out of the pistol against BYU. Um, all 14 of them were runs. Uh, 10 of them were successful. Um, they haven't got lined up in the pistol formation, at least outside of garbage time since then. You know, that's just a little, it's just a little ticking time bomb that they placed on film 
that, uh, you know, opposing defensive coordinators have to look at and sweat. Uh, you know, what are they going to do? And you know that having run 14 times out of it and passed zero times out of it, you know what's coming next, right? <laughs> you know, they're it's going to be a sweet little play action pass. It's be great. Yeah, I think they've they've done this on both sides of the ball, but let's stick with the offense for now. But they, they've done a really good job of week to week layering new concepts, new personnel groupings and new formations um, and just really giving an overload for future opponents to really prepare for. I mean, when we, we talk about like, I think it was the uh, Stanford game was when Oregon debuted their 21 personnel, their two mm-hmm. running back, one tight end package. Um, and they've done everything out of that package. They've lined up and empty with that personnel grouping and they've lined up in an 11 personnel formation with that. So every week they're adding something on film, whether it's a new wrinkle or a layer um, to an existing concept out of an existing personnel grouping, or it's a completely new personnel grouping with a completely new tendency that they're putting on film that between both sides of the ball with with a 20 hour work week, which is what these teams are constrained to in terms of preparation, it's nearly impossible to, to cover everything. And, And all you're seeing is that Oregon is giving out so much variety that they're able to trap teams into disadvantageous, either personnel groupings or, or formations, um, and then really take advantage of it. And, and that's been really fun to see. I mean, there have been things I've really never seen done. Um, for instance, Oregon running a unbalanced look into the boundary. Like, that's not something I've ever seen. Um, and then kind of in the way that the plays are being sequenced right now, I just think think the offensive staff is in a real groove, and, and it shows on tape. And I think it's going to be something that continues to progress as the season goes on. I also yeah, like how they've been go ahead, Doug. Just to add a little bit onto that, you know, one of the things that, you know, when you follow one team closely as as I think most of us do and Oregon fans do, you, you often fixate on, man, what are we gonna have to do to to slow down DTR and the UCLA offense and next weekend? And sometimes you have to kind of take a step back and realize what are the defensive coordinators across this conference saying to themselves when they're getting ready to play Oregon, because, uh, you know, the amount of variety as you, as you talked about and the amount of versatility and the amount of different formations and looks and counters to the counters, to the counters that, that you all have been talking about that Oregon is putting on film through six games, the, the, the variety of grouping personnel groupings, the variety of formations and all of those things is such a, there's so much of it. It's, I don't think there's any team in this conference that has put nearly as much versatility you know, on the field on offense as Oregon. And that's got to be a nightmare for those guys to adjust to as well. QB. It's not even limited to like personnel groupings and formations either. It's the personnel itself. Like when Oregon's in, in 12 personnel with Montevideo and Ferguson, like they can go into a bunch of different looks and packages and really personnel lock you defensively depending on what matchups they like. And because of the way that this roster has been constructed and the depth and talent that they have at the different skill position spots, Oregon is not in a position right now where they, where they are disadvantaged in any of these groupings. And so Kenny Dillingham has the ability to dictate to defenses what look he wants. Um, and, and I think they're doing a really good job of, of also with partnering changes in pacing with the changes in personnel groupings and formations. Um, for instance, like there was the, I think, I think the, probably the most, uh, awesome example of this was at the very end of the second quarter, again, in the BYU game in week three, when Oregon goes to that, that big, heavy jumbo 14 personnel package with Connor Lee in as a tight end and Herbert in as a fullback. And they just start pounding the ball down BYU's throat for about three minutes until the clock gets down to where they want it. And then all of a sudden it's like substitute and Oregon's going fast now and they're throwing the ball and they're trying to get in the end zone. And they score with so little time um, that now we're going into the half and Oregon gets the ball back. And there's a, there's a, a, an opportunity that was stolen away from BYU by good game management by both the head coach and the offensive coordinator on the Oregon sideline. And I think those are the types of advantages we we've discussed it a little bit on our podcast, but winning in the margins, things that Oregon wasn't doing in 2021 um, that they're doing in 2022. And it's, and it's showing on the scoreboard. And uh, I I think a lot of things are coming together um, currently for the Oregon offense. 
I'll give you another example of that versatility in terms of, you know, personnel, which is that, you know, Oregon's lit, you know, because I chart all the other teams in the Pac-12, you know, the, with the exception of USC, nobody's got a, as uh, large of a roster of skilled players who can play at a high level and who can play in multiple positions. So you've got outside receivers who are comfortable playing in the slot, you know, you know, Franklin and Coda, you know, we've seen those guys. We, you've got inside receivers who are capable of playing outside like Hudson. You've got running backs like dollars who are capable of, uh, of going out to the flanker. You've got tight ends who are capable of playing on ball, uh, H back, a fullback or split out. Um, and you can trot onto the field with one look and change it and change it again um, and, you know, gain personnel advantage. So against Arizona, for example, you know, they line up one where, you know, because Arizona locks their <clears throat> their corners to, uh, you know, field boundary, uh, you know, where you know, all they do is they move dollars out to be the X receiver and they move Franklin to be the, uh, the, 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 the slot receiver. And all of a sudden Franklin is not on, you know, being covered by their best cornerback. Now he's being covered by a relatively slow footed, you know, nickel defender. And what happens? He catches a post route for 25 yards, you know, cause the nickels nowhere near them. Um, you know, and, and, you know, it's easy to do that or against Stanford when they were having some weird, you know, pass catching problems or you know, a bunch of weird drops in that game, but Stanford's pass coverage gives a bunch of free access to the sideline throws. You know, the most productive receiver they had in the first half of that game was Sean dollars lining up, you know, not as a running back, but as a receiver. Um, and they run, you know, sequentially, you know, a, a, a switch against man and, uh, come back against zone. I mean, it was great. Like, uh, uh, and they switched in between slot next. Like, you know, it, it's a, it, it is a large and diverse and versatile set, you know, and, and, and studying all these other PAC 12 teams where they've got like, they've maybe got two wide receivers and a running back. And when they have to, you know, you know exactly what it's going to be based, you know, what the play is going to be based on where dudes are lined up. Uh, you know, like when, UCLA puts, you know, Bobo in the slot, you know, it's Y cross because they don't have any other options. Like, you know, nobody else has any hands on that team, you know, or, uh, y you know, when, when, uh, when Cal has to substitute, you know, uh, Brooks in for Ott, you know, you know what the type of run play it is because Ott doesn't have the skill set, you know, that, that, or excuse me, that Brooks doesn't have the skill set that Ott does, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I could go on for every single team. I could tell you, like, you can identify what the play cloud is likely to be based on, you know, the formation and the personnel who are in, um, you know, because their depth isn't nearly as good. Uh, and Oregon doesn't have that problem, you know, like it's, it's pretty nice. Yeah. I mean, that's a recruited advantage, right? Where you just have balance of talent where you have, you don't have one dimensional players. Like there's not role players, there's role players on this team, but not in the traditional sense where like player X is a receiving only tight end, like all the tight ends that are playing right now, are blocking their ass off. Like they can, they can block, they can catch the ball. Like none of these receivers like have stone hands to the point where like you can't, if they're in the game, you know, it's a, they're, we're just running, we're going heavy. Like there's not a lot of tendency based on personnel because there's not personnel that can't operate within the entire offense, um, which is a credit to, again, a credit to the past staff for recruiting some of these guys, the current staff for bringing in the guys that they brought in in the transfer portal in this last recruiting class. Um, but I think that one of the things is like in like press conferences, when coaches are hired, there's like this advertising, there's like slogans that are like attached to different schemes. Like we're going to be an aggressive defense or uh, we're going to isolate teams in one-on-one -on -one situations offensively. Like th that promise has been delivered by the offense. Guys are getting one-on-ones where if they win, they're basically by themselves. Like we're seeing that with Troy Franklin, when you move him into the slot on a safety that doesn't have the feet to stay with him, there's 10 yards of separation. And the only thing that's stopping him from scoring a touchdown on that play is a throw that is too high where he has to go outside his frame for it. Um, and that kind of brings me into Bo Nix. Like I know you did a substantial amount of film study on Bo Nix prior to his, him showing up at Oregon. I did as well. And really whenever he had a clean pocket, which was not very often at Auburn um, and he, he delivered the ball. He was accurate. And we've seen that he's not bouncing throws on free access stuff. Everything that's free access that's there is being hit. And, and when people talk about this, like good bow, bad bow, the, the, like the line of demarcation for good bow, bad bow was always 
when they were down in games and he was forced outside the pocket, he would try to go hero ball. I think he's really embraced, and this is a credit to both him and the offensive staff, but he's embraced the idea that he needs to be a distributor. And I don't mean game manager in like the traditional like Greg McElroy sense where it's like, just don't screw it up, but just work within the offense, play on schedule and distribute the ball and everything's going to work out. You don't need, when you, when you break the pocket, you don't need to go hero ball. And because the offensive line has played so well, we haven't really seen a lot of those, a, a lot of those opportunities for him to make those catastrophic mistakes that kind of plagued his Auburn career. So a lot of credit to Bo for his development during the offseason um, and also the management of him and, and the offense in, in general and just how off balance teams have been kept by the play calling. Well, and, you know, let's just hypothetically say the worst case scenario is true that like none of those things have been trained out of Bo Nix and that if, you know, situation gets dire, uh, he is going to do dumb things. Situation's not going to get dire, you know, like even if that's still part of him, the the nice part about having a run game that's this efficient and an offensive line that protects him this well and, you know, play calling that's not, you know, whatever the hell Mike Bobo calls what he was doing at Auburn, uh, you know, is that like he's just not going to be put in those situations he might occasionally throw a you know a dumb throw because you know he wants to (laughs) he wants to you know throw the ball real deep you know he's done that a couple of times a game uh you know sometimes opponents uh you know pay it off and sometimes they don't but like you know my point is that like yes I definitely picked up that you know that tendency you know at Auburn he had a bad offensive line in front of him and he usually only had one functional receiver and like you know Gus Malzahn was trying to get him to throw the ball to fullback half the time I mean they still are watch turn an Auburn game right now and watch Robbie Ashford try to find somebody to throw it to who's not their flipping fullback um I I mean it's just ridiculous how you know what a night and day you know surrounding cast situation that uh uh, Bo Nix you know stepped into when he when he left Auburn and came to Eugene um so you know even if it is the case that he's still inclined to play hero ball like when's he ever going to be in a situation with this offense versus Pat 12 defense is that 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 that's going to be a temptation for him yeah and and i think it's just a matter of continuing to be disciplined and 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 grow week to week um but i think one thing that deserves to be mentioned while we're on the topic of bo nix is the the exposure of him running the football and the explosiveness that has come from him carrying the ball more often the last three weeks um when we did our our first quarter of the season review he really hadn't ran the ball a whole lot, and now he's up to like 300 and something yards rushing. Um, and a lot of those are like when when there is a mistake, a rare mistake made by the offensive line and pass pro, he's he's able to make that first guy miss. I mean, he's just a pain in the butt to get on the ground in the backfield. And he's really he's done a good job of extending plays. But when he does break the pocket, for the most part, he's made better decisions. Um, and he's done a good job either protecting himself or situationally being an aggressive runner and converting those plays into touchdowns or first downs when necessary. So I think that's been something that's an, an element of the offense that is new newer over the last three weeks versus our initial talk about the offense. Um, that really just adds another element that's difficult for defenses to, to defend because when you're playing a team as balanced as Oregon with the with the across the board talent advantage that Oregon's going to have against 90% of Pac-12 defenses, if not 100%, now you have to take valuable resources from the back half or from the run fit just to shadow Bo Nix because he can kill you as Stanford learned on his 80-yard touchdown run. Um, go ahead. Well, yeah. I mean, like part of that is just structural though, right? Like, you know, Oregon, you know, situate, you know, situationally is rarely behind the chains and rarely behind on the scoreboard, right? Like he doesn't need to, Oh my God, the pocket's breaking down and it's third and 12. And I got to try a crazy pass. Cause otherwise we're going to lose the game. Like, you know, he's just not in that situation, you know, like he's in a situation where it's like, Oh, it's second and four. And Ooh, a guy got past the left guard. Well, I, you know, I can run for five yards. Uh, I know where, and, and like, he's a sharp enough guy and he ought to be, you know, this is fourth year as a starter. Uh, and was, you know, whatever, a five-star out of high school and a football legacy. Like, you know, he knows where the, you know, he knows where the defense is situated. He knows where his outlet is. He knows how to like spin out of it or, or, you know, he's got 
elite body control. When someone like gets a finger on them, it doesn't automatically bring him down. Uh, you know, and, and, but just structurally, like he's not required to play hero ball. He's, you know, at most required when it's time to scramble to like, you know, get, make it to the next down, you know, like, which is, you know, he's more than capable of doing. The only thing in the offense that we haven't discussed yet, and I think it's probably, it's definitely worth noting, um, especially over the last couple of years. And it's something that I know that you chart and I want to hear, hear your perspective on this is the running back room, like Bucky Irving, Noah Whittington. Um, they're, they're doing a good job of capitalizing on what has been a tremendous effort by the offensive line so far. They're second in the country currently um, in line yards offensively, but they're also just, running hard and getting a lot of yards after contact, doing a really good job of making second level defenders miss, um, assisting to set up and good angles for our offensive line and, 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 and punishing defenders, um, while protecting the ball. Uh, yeah, it's really remarkable to watch them run. I mean, Oregon, uh, you know, I think was pretty fortunate to, you know, they, the, they've taken, they took two transfers and both of them were sort of advanced products when they arrived, you know, uh, um, I think the new running backs coach, uh, Carlos Lachlan's a real, um, has turned out to be a real gem and like he wasn't on anybody's radar screen. He'd literally only been, uh, an FBS coach for the, for one year, 2021 at Western Kentucky. Um, and I like, boy, you know, what a great find he's turning out to be. Um, uh, you know, you see really excellent techniques out of those guys, you know, you see them protect the ball really well and you see them, you know, it's really difficult to bring them down. They're breaking tackles, you know, even when they got to make their own, you know, they're turning, you you know, uh, you know, four or five yard runs into nine yard runs by just, you know, barreling through or breaking tackles and stuff. the other thing is that like, you know, it's nice to see, but it's not necessary. You know, like I I have a, I have a code on my tally sheet called Yakko, uh, which stands for yard after contact only. And, and what that means is that, um, uh, I use it to describe plays in which if the running back went down on first contact, it would have been a failed play, but he didn't go down. He, you know, persisted and uh, flipped it to be a successful play. And I I keep track of that because it's useful. It's like my version of adjusted line yards. Uh, You know, in other words, it lets me tell the difference between rushing offenses that are successful because the running back is doing a ton of work and rushing offenses that are successful because the offensive line is doing, you know, the ton, a ton of work. Anyway, you know, with with Oregon's run situation, I have a lot of yak, but I don't have a lot of yakko. You know, they the the offensive line is buying them the first five yards, and then the running back is doing some more fun stuff, you know, to turn it into explosive plays. Um, and I mean that 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 combination's hard to beat. <laughs> it's really hard to beat. Well, the I, the really crazy thing about that whole situation is like Coach Lachlan comes in, like they they show up after the national title game the second week of January, and shortly after Trey Benson and Travis Dye are gone, right? You're down to two scholarship running backs at one point. They go out, they get Jordan James in the second signing period. They bring in Noah Whittington um, during spring ball, and then they get Bucky Irving after spring ball, um, and to be able to turn to lose the quality of backs because Trey Benson has been extremely productive for Florida state this year. Travis Dye is very clearly RB one at USC to lose two guys who have been productive and have proven to be good players and to not only not drop off, but I I would argue that we're better at running back now than we were a year ago um, is just a massive feather in the cap for, for coach Lachlan um, and his ability to recruit, identify talent and then coach them once they get on campus, because Again, like the ball security, knock on wood, we don't wanna we don't wanna talk about a no hitter in progress, but like it's been exceptional and it's they're not they're not looking for places to fall. They're fighting for extra yardage, they're looking for explosive plays, um, they're running to open grass. So it heck of a job by Coach Lachlan in the running back room. Really, really glad that we were able to bring in guys like like uh, Bucky Irving and Noah Whittington. I think with that note, um, let's switch over and talk about a unit that that maybe has been more up, uh, certainly has been more up and down than the offense, and and uh, I think you know most of the statistical rankings have the Oregon defense somewhere in the mid forties to mid fifties uh, in the FBS, and and I think there's a lot of opportunity for for that side of the ball to improve over the second half of the season. So let's start there and 
and maybe Hiff, you know, start with telling us like, what is your what are your numbers showing for the defense? Well, the defense is really where the biggest um, effects occur if you exclude the Georgia game. Um, you know, I, I feel like most fans probably intuitively uh, feel like this might be the case. But, I, you know, I can tell you, you know, based on the numbers, it really is true. Like excluding the Georgia game makes Oregon's, uh, uh, you know, uh, pass defense efficiency jump from 56.5% for the entire sample to 63.5% um, for the, you know, uh, for the excluding Georgia sample. So, you know, that's a, that, that's a jump of seven percentage points for excluding a single game which is bonkers. Like that's, I mean, enormous and, and a similar, uh, it's six and a half percent, you know, jump from, you know, 61.9 to 68 and a half, um, in, in rush defense. Um, like it's, you know, it's a single game that's just absolutely killing the ducks numbers. And that's an advanced stats that's, you know, already, you know, controlling for garbage time. I feel like there are probably a lot of people, um, who are just looking at raw stats, um, and are saying, Oh my God, this past defense is terrible, but you know, you got to remember, you know, a including the Georgia data definitely tanks Oregon's pass defense. Um, and B, uh, you know, ex- including garbage time is going to disproportionately kill the pass defense because what happens with garbage time, it's the opponent keeps their starters in against Oregon's backups. And because they're behind, they're throwing the ball all the time. So like, of of course that happens, you know, like that, that, I mean, it's just enormous what happens to my past defense numbers as soon as I hit the kill garbage time button. Um, so, you know, like really Oregon, you know, and, and then the Georgia game, I guess, you know, reasonable people can disagree about this. Uh, you know, QB and I have had conversations in the past about like what's going on there. I favor the theory that, um, you know, the, the Dan landing didn't change his password, so to speak that like Georgia knew where blitzes were coming from. Um, you know, that they were, you know, I would see plays that I charted Georgia run during 2021 where Stetson Bennett, you know, wasn't going against Oregon was not going through the normal progression first, second, third read. He was immediately jumping to the third read because that's, you know, he knew that's where the open guy was going to be based on Oregon's defensive configuration. And like nobody else has access to that. You know, the reason why I feel pretty comfortable excluding the Georgia game from the data set and saying this is a more realistic look at what, you know, Oregon defense you know is um against all of their upcoming opponents you know the six games that they have remaining on their conference schedule is that nobody else knows dan laning's passwords like nobody else gets to do that again um you know so you know my my point is fairly you know clear i think that oregon's defense is pretty unfairly maligned you know i i excluding the georgia game or excluding both the georgia game and the eastern washington game this is another situation where like they're not eaten out on eastern washington so just those four games byu stanford arizona and uh and wazoo uh, you know, their pass defense is grading out at 62%. The rush defense is grading out at 67%. They're allowing six yards per pass, four yards per run adjusted. Uh, there are only 8% of passes go explosive. Only six and a half percent of runs go explosive. Those are X, those are championship caliber numbers, you know, in terms of defense and uh, on the advanced stats. Um, you know, it's, they're really just getting tanked by the Georgia game and by garbage time. And I think it, the most sensible thing to do is simply to exclude those. And, and, and I, think that folks who aren't excluding those things you know are are making a mistake so i I definitely don't want to discount the idea that there was familiarity for the georgia staff and the georgia offense going against the Oregon defense because georgia runs the same system we run so they see it every day in practice they've seen it every day in practice for five years now since since kirby got to georgia i think that there was also an issue where you have a team that's extraordinarily talented like top three most talented team in the country that just came off a national championship playing in Atlanta, going up against a team that is not fully comfortable in their new systems and not executing their new systems at a high level. Because like for whatever familiarity advantage they had, there was also just the factor that we weren't executing or playing well. Like our, our edge players specifically were unbelievably horrible in that game. Like Funa and DJ Johnson were, were very frequently just playing with poor technique. It was like a complete reversion of everything they had learned through the spring, the summer, and fall camp back to 2021 Oregon defense. Um, and then even against Eastern Washington, who's a team that we absolutely dominated and destroyed, not all, all of the technical problems and all of the 
like kind of in inefficiency in the execution of the schemes was not yet worked out. Like those things were showing up less, but still showing up even against a bad team. And then over the course of the first six games, I think week to week to week to week to week, we've seen these these things get start to get ironed out. Um, I, I would like to specifically reference um, the execution on stunts and some of the simulated pressures and blitzes where earlier, like first three games of the season, we had guys running into each other all the time. The timing was off. Uh, it looked slow and clunky because it was slow and clunky. Whereas last week it, against Arizona, like guys are starting to operate within the system at a much higher level. Like we're not having edge players get way upfield when they're unblocked defenders. We're not having some of the technical and mental breakdowns, maybe eye discipline issues that we were having earlier in the season. And I think that's just natural when you're going and installing a brand new system, especially a new system with as much diversity as this one has, because we're running far more coverages than we ran a year ago. We're running far more different structures entirely. I mean, we've ran uh, mint three, four, like tight front stuff. We've ran uh, over and under even fronts. We've ran traditional four, two, five nickel stuff. We've ran three, three, five stack, which is like, they installed a 33 stack for one game. (laughs) It was crazy. Yeah. They're running, they're running completely different systems like within a game, but also week to week. Um, and it, it's showing one that we, I don't think that we have a defensive head coach and, and a group of defensive coaches, whether it be Powell or, or Lapoy, that are like, they know one system because they coached with a guy one time and that's all they can do. I think we have a coaching staff defensively that understands defense on a holistic level. Um, and they're installing it as such. And so there's a lot more, there's a lot more for these guys to learn. And that's why we're seeing these incremental improvements week to week. I just think that the shock of going up against an opponent of Georgia's caliber right off the bat, fresh with brand new stuff, is is why that game turned out the way it did defensively. Um, but I think if we played that game instead of UCLA next week, it would be a much closer game than it was in week one because the Oregon defense and all of its personnel are each individually doing their jobs at a much more consistent and high level than they were uh, coming out of fall camp in the first game. Yeah, well, I mean, you – you look at the you look at that Arizona game you mentioned, and I mean Arizona had just a little over two hundred yards before garbage time. You know they had about a hundred yards on the ground and about a, you know one hundred and fifteen or one hundred and twenty through the air, and, and it was forty two to thirteen, and and then I think they racked up you know a couple of long drives after that. So you know that's a that's a pretty impressive showing against an offense that is that has really racked up a lot of yards and a lot of points you know throughout the season and is pretty pretty dangerous and, and then you go back to the Stanford game and that's not a great offense by any stretch but they can throw the ball around in a little bit and and again before garbage time you know Stanford had three points and and hadn't really done a whole lot you know before those last couple of touchdowns so I I do think you're seeing you know looking at it within context you are seeing a defense that is improving considerably week to week. And obviously this this next game against UCLA will be the biggest test yet. And I really quick, Heath, before you go, like I don't think that these improvements defensively are like, they're not all unit improvements. It's not like, okay, all 11 guys are on the same page more this week. Like that is happening. But a lot of it is just individual players, the development that's been happening week to week throughout the season guys are stepping up into roles, guys are executing at a higher level, guys are winning their one-on-ones um, and playing within the scheme and, and, and playing with better eye discipline. You have individuals taking really big steps. I mean, just looking at the cornerback position, I think that um, Triquist Bridges somewhat unfairly has been much maligned by Oregon fans, and I, I don't think he's the, the best player we've ever had out there. Um, but guys like Jaleel Florence and, and Dante Manning are legitimately biting at his heels now, whereas they weren't really playing all that much in week one. Uh, and I think that says a lot about about the coaching staff and the development that's been taking place during the week when we aren't able to watch um, as, as the season has gone gone on. Yeah, Bridges is always. I mean, just structurally, Bridges was going to come in for some for some abuse because he first of all he's playing against you know on the opposite side of Christian Gonzalez, which like Christian Gonzalez may well be the best cornerback in the league. Like whoever is opposite that guy is going to get the ball thrown against him. Um, and then the other thing is they're cornerbacks. You only see them when they screw up, um, you know, unless you're, you know, really idiotically watching, you know, as much film as I do. Uh, and and basically, like, yes, Bridges has given up, you know, one bad pass a game. Um, 
it, it happens, man. You know, like every cornerback does, even the very best cornerbacks will give something up. Um, and, you know, considering that he's not naturally built like a safety, you know, only one a game is actually, you know, you know, all things considered, not the worst thing in the world. He's also, you know, been pretty reliable. Um, you know, he, he, he gets up and he makes the tackle, you know, he doesn't, you know, let the, let, let something big get behind him. Um, you know, and, uh, and on all the plays that you're not watching, he's doing very well. Um, you know, I do think that it's probably only a matter of time before some of the, you know, the young players who really are naturally built like corners, you know, uh, get to be as reliable as he is and displace him at that position, because that's what happens when, you know, people who are more naturally suited to the job, uh, you know, are, are, are ready to do it. Um, but like the idea that Oregon's losing games because of, uh, Tripos bridges is probably, you know, uh, I, I don't buy that theory. You know, I, the, the, the reason that Oregon's going to be losing games would have to be systemic stuff that like, you know, they're facing a quarterback who can just take the entire secondary apart. Um, or, you know, Oregon is turning the ball over on, you know, for, for bonkers reasons. Um, it, you know, the, the idea that there's, oh, there's just this one, you know, there's this one dude, you know, on the team that's betraying everybody. It's like football doesn't really work that way in general. And it definitely doesn't work that way, you know, in this specific case. Yeah, I agree. I think like the two areas that I think the defense needs to improve most, I know one is I'm kind of stealing it from Doug because it's something he talks about all the time is like the third down conversions, third down stop rate has not been particularly good for Oregon this season. It's, um, it's, it's been straight up bad. It's ranked 127th in the yeah, country. Yeah. And I mean, they're generally like they're allowing methodical drives and then stopping it in the red zone, which is why they can still have a good defense, but a bad third down defense. But it's still like, hey, guys, you know, well, you're not they're not allowing teams to really stay ahead of the chains like the the, the run defense, the stuff, right? Like th- those things are all looking actually very good. Um, and they look even better when you remove the Georgia sample. Um, so like whatever the, the dysfunction is on third down. And I think that, again, I think that it's been somewhat improving. It might not be manifesting quite yet on the stat sheet. And I think it's going to take a larger sample to see that ful- fulfill itself, but that's an area that really needs to be improved. And then also like when a lot of the explosive plays that Oregon has given up, and this is something that, that worries me move, kind of moving towards this UCLA game is when Oregon is getting guys is scheming free runs at the quarterback, whether it's like a simulated pressure where Sewell's coming unblocked, like though we need to start finishing those opportunities in the backfield when guys win their one-on-one and they create pressure because the pressure rate is good. The sack rate is bad and it's, it's because we're not finishing the play. And so continuing to improve. And then some of this is just a talent thing where guys don't have the athletic body control to, to really break down and to finish in space. Um, but I think having Justin Flo kind of now healthy working back into the rotation is going to help with this. And you know, I think even Jeffrey Bass has proven to be one of the better blitzers on the team. But that's something that they need to continue to improve on as the season progresses because the athletic qualities of the quarterbacks that we face are not going to be getting any easier. Like DTR is probably the hardest quarterback on our schedule to sack. Um, and, it, and if he's not, then Cam Rising's right up there and Michael Penix is tough to sack and so there's there's no shortage of players that can punish you and create explosive plays out of good defense if you're not finishing. Um, and so that's something that I want to see continue to to get better. Or if not explosive plays, at least just run for the first down. You know, we spent some time talking about how good Bo Nix is about, like, you know, recognizing where the pressure is coming from, spinning away from it. You know, I I just been doing because I wrapped up my UCLA film study. I've been doing Cal film study. I don't really think a whole lot about uh, Plummer, you know, uh, uh, until I started watching this tape. That dude's under pressure all the time because his offensive line stinks. And yet, you know, against Notre Dame, you know, he's you know, flipping out and scrambling for first downs, like all the time, it's actually probably the best part of Cal's offense. Um, so like even the, you know, even the quarterbacks you're not thinking about in this league, you know, are, uh, you know, will pick up a first down with their legs. I mean, honestly, it's the, 
you know, ha- having done this much film study of the, the Pac-12 for years, I got to you know, just structurally, the difference between this league and every other, you know, power league is that the offensive lines in this league are so bad that, like, it has affected the way that quarterbacks are recruited and how uh, fans and commentators think about what constitutes a good offense and a good quarterback. Like, you know, every other league, you know, quarterbacks are evaluated on their ability to accurately throw from the pocket to every different point on the field in the pac 12 it's like ah, i don't really care about that i care about your ability to run uh, you know outside the pocket and make off play schedule plays because you're going to have to do that a lot um and and like you know that's just that's that's not the exception in the pac 12 that's the rule the rule is that you're going to you know it's not tanner mckee every week tanner mckee is the exception uh it's guys who are are going to make off schedule plays and so converting that you know like getting pressure that's great if you get pressure in the big 10 you're probably going to get a sack if you get pressure in the pac 12 well your job's only half done yeah and i i I think that Again, getting guys healthy will help. I know that Noah Sewell's been nursing an injury. Uh, I don't mean to pick on him, but he's been pretty bad in those situations his entire career. So figuring out either a, diff- a different guy in those situations in those obvious passing downs or um, him getting healthier and being able to finish is going to be a-, a big piece going down the stretch in closer games. It's interesting you mentioned Bossa because he's the guy who I- – I I don't have any middle plays for him on my tally sheet. He's either making a sack that nobody else in the inside linebacker core can make um, because of his um, speed. You know, he's a converted safety, right? He's a smaller guy. Um, Or he's getting bounced off of blockers or or running backs, you know, in in ways that are sort of like, ouch. Um, But like, you're not going to have the one without the other. Uh, and he's been, you know, a a versatile and useful addition to the inside linebacker core, you know, which runs deep at this point, you know, like they can have a little nagging injury to Sewell or flow can take a couple of games off to get healthy, you know, and, and, you know, they have reliable players like Bossa and LeDuc and, uh, and Keith Brown, um, really been impressed with Keith Brown. He was really been just getting, you know, backup reps, but he looks good when he comes in for them. Um, hell, they got a couple of true fresh. Freshman, uh, 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 Taggart and um, Jackson. His name again. Thank you, Jackson. Ah, why do I keep forgetting it? Um, uh, who look good in garbage time? Um, you know, like it's a deep inside linebacker core, and, and they all sort of like have a somewhat different skill set. You know, they're not clones of each other. Um, and uh, and some of them just have magic powers. You know, like I, I there's a clip in my article of Flo during the Arizona game where I swear to God he teleports like two yards behind an offensive lineman. Like it's just crazy what he can do. Um, and if he can like, I mean, obviously his development is a little, you know, it's behind, you know, what Sewell's. You know, he came in at the same time as Sewell with the same, you know, rating. But he clearly has, you know, certain physical gifts. On the other hand, his development has been slowed down by all the time that he's missed. If he can catch up, man, you know, that that dude's a force of nature. Yeah, I mean, when you compare him and Sewell, Sewell's probably got about 700 snaps and Flo's probably got about 70 and they've been on campus the same amount of time just due to injury. And so there's things that that flow can do just from an explosive athleticism standpoint that really nobody else on the roster, including Bassett can do like he can, he can make certain plays and he can finish with a certain level of physicality that is uncommon for really any linebacker across the country, let alone on this roster. So him continuing to get healthy and get more comfortable in the defense and execute at a higher level and kind of harness some of his, reckless abandon is something that can really raise the ceiling of this defense down the stretch. Uh, I wanted to talk about the defensive line because, you know, it's a three down front and just, you know, schematically three down fronts do not jump off of stat sheets. And so the only people who are going to appreciate dominant three down front linemen are people who watch film and that's my job. And so I get to say, this is a really good defensive line. Like this is far and away the best defensive line in the pack 12. They are big, like really big. Uh, they are athletic. They plug gaps and they are deep. You know, they've got multiple nose tackles. They got multiple four eyes and the four eyes are so big that they can stem over and play, you know, shaded over the center or, you know, or on his shoulder. Um, 
and, and so they can give uh, you know a bunch of different formational looks like I, again this is fresh in my memory because i just finished watching the cal notre dame game cal's got two defensive configurations they've got a two down front and they've got a three down front and their three down front is the same three guys because they're the only guys they can put in you know and their three down front looks exactly the same every time they run it you know they can't stem at all um because of Cal's talent limitations, you know, and Oregon have that problem. Oregon can give you 50 different, you know, looks for their defensive line. Um, and, you know, and and we haven't even got to what they can do for blitzing yet. You know, like I'm just talking about their normal looks, you know, uh, it, it is it is diverse. It is big. It is powerful. And, you know, you know, if you look at the stat sheets and you're looking for tackles for loss and sacks, it's a three down front. You're not going to see them. Um, and, you know, sad to say, you know, there's no cave on Thibodeau on this roster, like Oregon's pass rush, you know, they, they do not have an outside linebacker does not appear, um, who is, you know, at that elite level. And in this defensive structure, that's where those, um, havoc stats would be coming from. Uh, you know, it's probably, you know, the biggest missing component, you know, to this defense, but I can also tell you from the way that this defense is structured, you know, not just like theoretically, but I mean, I did that whole film study project on Georgia in 2021 when was Dan Lanning coordinating you know, the super, you know, five-star, everybody's a first-round NFL draft pick, you know, version of this defense, like, it's not dependent on Havoc rate. Like, Havoc is a nice thing if it happens, but it doesn't have to happen the way that, like, for example, some Nick Aliotti defenses at Oregon over the years that I'm sure many of our listeners um, have have watched, or other defenses that I've watched over the years, are absolutely dependent on Havoc. Like, if they're not forcing the quarterback to panic and throw interceptions, they're going to give up long touchdown drives. Um, that's not the nature of this defense. Um, it like havoc is a, a luxury for this defense. It'd be really nice to have it. And against better offenses, it'd be really, you know, may, may even be necessary to develop it. But for most of the teams that they play, just keeping the play in front of them and preventing you from running because they can clog up the interior gaps with a couple of linemen is, just fine uh and more than adequate to getting the job done yeah i mean oregon far and away is the best nose tackle play in the conference right now like jordan riley taki taimani and that's it's and that's without popo being available this entire season due to injury um they and he's probably the best returning nose tackle in the conference coming into this season it's been tremendous they've had a lot of flexibility to play really light fronts and keep in that too high shell because of how good those interior guys have been of eating blocks and kind of allowing Oregon to still limit efficiency run plays, even against lighter personnel groupings. So that's been really, really impressive. The flexibility of both um, DJ Johnson and Brandon Dorless to play a multiplicity of roles within the scheme, whether that's playing as more of like edge players and even front being a true drop linebacker in DJ's case, or playing sometimes a four eye when we go to some light, uh, more hybrid hybridized fronts. So a lot of a lot of really really good stuff out of the interior defensive line, um, and, I, and I agree with you. I think that currently the structure, given that we don't have a super dynamic elite edge rusher, um, is more of like a python constricting. Like we want to make this, we want to make the field feel small, and and really make you earn it. And the 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 havoc and explosive plays are going to come off of guys winning one on ones, and then being able to simulate larger groups of defenders being brought on blitzes uh, through the simulated pressure game where you're still getting the same numbers in the back end and the flexibility to continue to mix and play different coverages on a down and down basis and make the picture confusing for quarterbacks. And so uh, as this continues to develop, as they get, they're able to get in maybe some more explosive players um, in terms of from a pass rush standpoint going forward, this is going to be a really, really fun defensive scheme to watch and monitor because they can do so many different things as we already covered in regards to the different surfaces and fronts that they've played this season. Uh, my most improved player over the course of the first half of the season has been Mace Funa. Uh, agree or disagree? Uh, I would agree. I mean, he had such a horrible baseline to start with through the first two games. The kind of the only direction was up. I, I think he's been the most improved guy with a large sample set, but I think the most improved players are the two backup corners in Florence and Manning. Um, although we didn't really get to see them a lot in the first couple yeah, of games. Yeah, I, I want more data on them before I make that claim. I, I'm just wanting to say, like, I've been really, you know, there was a point during the 2020 season where I had kind of written Mace Funa off. Um, 
And, uh, and then, you know, when I was watching him in the opener against Georgia, I was like, oh boy. Um, and you know, here, here we are after week six and he's, you know, like, you know, that they are, they are no longer using a, uh, a strict weak side, uh, strong side linebacker situation. Part of that had to do with DJ Johnson, um, you know, being excluded, uh, you know, uh, for, for targeting. Um, but you know, they're, comfortable playing you know mace funa as the only olb on the field and you know effectively defending the edge which like if you told me that after week one you could have knocked me over with a feather yeah yeah no i agree he's definitely gotten a lot better um i think a lot of guys have gotten a lot better on this defense a guy that wasn't on the team last year but i watched an extensive amount of film on prior to his arrival like jordan riley was as good as he's been about 30% of the time at Nebraska. And he's playing at a, at a really high level down to down. And I think part of that is because he's not having to play a ton of downs and they're able to rotate and keep guys fresh. But he's just been, he's been a grizzly bear in the middle, just absolutely mauling guys, eating two, sometimes three blocks while, while not giving ground and just really creating uh, clean lanes for our linebackers to pursue the ball through. Uh, yeah, it's been a real pleasure. Like, you know, I most recently did that Arizona film study and like, you know, so as we mentioned, like they installed, you know, for about a third of their meaningful defensive snaps, they were playing out of a stack defense and, you know, and when you have a third inside linebacker on the field and the whole sort of thing about a stack defense is that there are some, some offenses that it totally shuts down and there are other offenses that it really struggles with. And like, it's all about like the, the linebackers have to make correct choices, you know, in terms of like which lanes they're going through because that's the whole point of a stack is that like it's not obvious from pre-snap configuration um and so like i'm sitting there doing film study trying to figure out like you know okay is this the right gap is this the right gap is this the right gap uh and then it winds up like not being relevant because riley is just making the tackle on his own <laughs> he's just like single-handedly destroying you know the the offensive line and making the tackle I'm like well <laughs> i guess that's all that yeah i've been really impressed with with uh with riley in particular but but really the whole group and just like the size too, you know, of the four eyes. I mean, it's just like you, you want to put Ware Hudson over the center, you know, go for it. You know, like, you know, all these guys are so big and, and Doralus is flexibility to play, you know, anywhere from the inside out to the, you know, outside of the tight end. I mean, it's just, you know, absolutely remarkable. So I think that pretty much wraps up the defense. Um, any, any thoughts on, you know, maybe quick thoughts on, either special teams or kind of overall coaching or, or things we want to look forward to in the second half of the season. And, and QB, why don't you start us off on this one? Well, as a proud uh, ignoramus of special teams, I don't know hardly anything about them, but I know that I like when our kickers consistently don't talk ball. about a no hitter. <laughs> well, no, I'm not. Don't worry. I'm talking about uh, Boyle putting the ball through the end zone a pretty considerable amount of the time and consistently getting us touchbacks so that we don't actually have to cover kicks because in the past couple of years uh, under Bobby Williams, I think Oregon was giving up a, a fair number of explosive returns in, in the kickoff game. And so far um, just, just having a kicker that's putting, putting the ball deep in the end zone has has been a really nice change. And for reasons that Hithliday already said, I'm not going to mention any other kickoff kickers, but uh, yeah, I mean, not having a single punt returned is kind of a mixture of, of both poor punts from a distance standpoint, but also good coverage. Um, and the fact that the punters not really seeing the field that much. So um, not noticing the special teams in a negative manner is, is a positive. I, I don't know that we have any game changing explosive returners out there right now. Uh, I think that's something they'll probably look to recruit here over the next year or two uh, just to, to upgrade that spot. But uh, you, you can't uh, can't hate on ball security. Uh, I have enjoyed that the, uh, the, the punt receiving, uh, you know, the, the, the guy who's catching the ball has been making wise decisions, uh, a hundred percent of the time. Uh, you know, I haven't, uh, you know, I, I haven't seen him call for a fair catch when I thought he'd get more yards. I haven't seen him, you know, make a, you know, try to get stuff when that, you know, that would have been a stupid idea that risked, you know, injury, uh, you know, that, that has, uh, you know, that's been pretty excellent, but basically, you know, you know, play from scrimmage precedes special teams play, you know, they are not having to kick many field goals. They are not having to punt very often. They are having to receive lots of punts. Uh, and that's because play from scrimmage has been excellent. Yeah. And I'll just say every time my team, kicks 
very few field goals and punts very infrequently. That makes me a very happy person because I think both of those, I, I'm not a, one of those people who believes in taking field goals unless you absolutely have to. And I certainly don't believe in punting unless you absolutely have to. So um, I well, don't and care special teams, punter. Yeah, go ahead. Special teams is the, is the strategic decision-making that is most, you know, reflective of the coach, the head coach's strategic consciousness. And like, you know, as you mentioned earlier, you know, winning on the margins, you know, they are going for it on fourth down, you know, when they're supposed to be going for it on fourth down, like they're, they're clearly analytically informed. Um, and, uh, boy, I appreciate that too. Uh, you know, for, for other reasons, I've been watching, uh, some Texas A&M games and boy, um, Jimbo Fisher is not analytically informed uh, <laughs> really yeah. are you sure about that <laughs> he's very he's very much stuck in 1995 um but the the other thing like as we kind of transition this conversation just like general observations about the coaching like uh the the clock management has been tremendous to this point this season um both the ability in the middle eight to slow the ball slow down or go fast uh to capitalize on possessions late in the first half has been great not wasting timeouts for stupid reasons on the first drive of a half every game um, is a nice change from from past seasons uh, and, and just overall I think that or- Oregon's done a very good job of capitalizing on, on on the opportunities whether it be through like converting uh, red zone trips into touchdowns when the analytics say you should go for it on fourth um, or or, or just managing your clock, the clock well um, to limit opponent possessions. They, they've done a good job in the margins. Yeah, on that on that note, um, Oregon has only uh, five red zone trips that haven't resulted in a touchdown. And as we know, four of those were in the first half of the Washington State game. So, outside of that, of those four, they have their their uh, what's that make them uh, eleven for twelve the rest of the way. The other the other all the other halves of football so very very good in the red zone and and they've actually are third in the conference among conference play is from preventing red zones in the touchdown as well at 50 percent. so um, they've been they've been strong and on both sides in the, in that area in the red area as dan likes to say hifliday is there anything else that you want to fire off here before we wrap this thing up the biggest thing well there's two things uh I don't want to see Bo Nix making dumb decisions. That's the number one thing that I worry about, you know, in terms of uh, Oregon giving away games that they otherwise, you know, should, should, should have closed out by the early third quarter. Uh, You know, that's, if that doesn't happen, the most likely cause is that. So I don't want to see it, (laughs) but who knows whether we will or not. It sort of feels like a roll the dice. Um, and the other thing that I, I guess I'm curious about is like, you know, Oregon's had exactly two types of games. They've had the type of game where they got humiliated and that was in Atlanta. And then they've had five games in which they do the humiliating. Um, we haven't really seen them play an in-between game. Um, and we haven't really seen sort of psychologically how the players, how the coaching staff, you know, deal with, okay, you know, you got to grit your teeth, you know, because even against Wazoo, which, you know, I understand that game was decided by three points and Oregon was behind for most of it. Like if you look at the fundamentals, you know, Oregon was killing Wazoo. They were getting anything that they wanted. And if it wasn't for, you know, some certain drive extending penalties and some trick plays and so forth that make the score, you know, look a lot closer than that, you know, you know, Oregon was effortlessly moving down the field. And so I really don't feel like that represented so much of the psychological logical, you know, challenge as, you know, the scoreboard might indicate. Um, if Oregon's in an actual dogfight, like I still don't really know how the staff is going to respond um, and, and how, uh, you know, the players are going to respond. And like, you know, it's the sort of one unanswered question that's left for this team. I hope we don't have to find out. I hope yeah, they just right. keep doing what they've been doing and <laughs> we all are happy for the rest of the season. I like the, the my last thing is I'm just, I'm so happy that this team has developed some type of killer instinct and has put games away and gotten into garbage time because these developmental reps that these young players have been getting late in these games against like other team starters and kind of in in playing under the lights and getting real game film that they can study and go back and work on things during the week. And again, during the off season, that's, that's valuable. That's important. That's what 
is really separating these elite programs that don't have a lot of drop off when they lose production from teams that like it's kind of a flip of the coin whether or not they're going to be able to replace a guy so i'm um, just really really glad that that the staff and the team have figured out a way to put teams away and finish games so that we can get these reps to these young players yeah and i'll just end with you know in addition to that i like seeing the adjustments that we're seeing you know both week to week and we've talked about this a lot on this episode and others that you know the week to week adjustments and game plans but also the in-game adjustments and game plans i think have been have been really strong when needed by by the staffs on both sides of the football so that's really encouraging and i think that will will serve the the ducks well as they go through the second half of the season uh one more thing qb before we head out no, I think that, that that covers it all. I just want to really thank Day for coming on again. Um, doing these like three-game quarterly reviews is like therapeutic for myself, and I know it is for you, Doug, and we really appreciate you, Day. You're kind of a beautiful mind on this stuff. Uh, well, thank you. It's, it's a pleasure to talk to another knowledgeable person or, or two, if we can count Doug. Uh, uh, if I can give a, a plug for my stuff, I, I'm the managing editor at Addicted to Quack. Uh, it's a website. Uh uh, next week, I will be publishing a, a mid-season statistical review, which has a, a lot of the stuff that we talked about today and more, uh, uh, you know, offensive line stats and, and other things that would be kind of boring to read on a podcast. I don't want anybody to crash the car or cut their fingers off while they're making dinner. Um, and then on Friday, I'll be publishing my um, my film study preview of UCLA, uh, which should be real thriller. So, Doug, I, are you going to fight back or... What, what's going to happen here? I mean, I was about to hit the buzzer on that one right there, but um, no, I, I yeah, definitely appreciate that. If the, you know, the challenge is always when, when there's three of us on here and especially when you two get going is, is getting a word in edgewise. So I, I tend to, to just sit back and let you two masters, uh, you know, go back and forth. And it's, it makes my job really easy on these, but we love having you on Hithel Day and I can't thank you enough for being here again. Hey, my pleasure. Perfect. Well, we will be seeing you guys on Sunday with a recap episode following this weekend's action. Um, and then we'll obviously be doing our uh, weekly preview of the UCLA game as we get into next week. And uh, we, again, just appreciate all the support. Appreciate Hitler Day. Make sure you guys go check out Addicted to Quack. If you're not watching, um, watching or I guess it's kind of a watch slash read with his articles with all the film clips um then you're you're a filthy casual and you don't you don't belong on this podcast so go watch all of his stuff uh, make sure to support him and uh we'll talk to you guys next week